1977, Robin Davidson crossed 2,700 kilometres of desert from Alice Springs to the Indian Ocean with her dog and her four camels. It became a best-selling book, tracks, a movie. She was just 27. In the 40-something years since, Davidson has written about nomads and fittingly has travelled constantly herself, living between India and Australia and London and New York. And now comes a book called Unfinished Woman, in which in the first three pages she tells us that when she was 11, her mother, Gwen, hanged herself from the rafters of their garage using the cord of the electrical kettle. Davidson says in the book that she has been trying to write about her mother for years. And she's with me now. Hello. Hello, Kim. Um, Thank you for the book. It's extraordinarily interesting and well-written. The Unfinished Woman, presumably, is both you and your mother. Correct, yes. It's sort of all of us, too, I think. Yeah. I mean, do you feel unfinished? God, I hope so. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, I think... uh, I think of myself as an ongoing project, let's put it that way. A work in progress. Did your, work in progress. Did your family talk about your mother's death? She wasn't spoken about ever again. Her name wasn't mentioned. I didn't go to the funeral. Um, it was as if she was just disappeared, absolutely disappeared. And of course, you have to remember it was 61 when she died. So, you know, the 50s were still very much the ethos. And suicide was something shameful, something to be hidden. So I found out later, for example, that old friends hadn't been invited to the funeral because the family didn't want to know the manner of death, didn't want people to know the manner of death. So, yes, it was all hidden over. And you were sent to live with your father's sister shortly thereafter? Yes, yes. So, again, a a really rather primitive era in terms of um, psychology, that's for sure. Um, So I was sent immediately to live with what was called in those days a maiden aunt, um, who I was very fond of, but she knew nothing about children and certainly nothing about traumatised children. Um, So I lived with her for a couple of years, then boarding school and then... I could escape into the world. How old were you when you escaped into the world, by which I'm thinking you went to Sydney? Pretty much, yes. I mean, it's slightly more complicated than that. But yes, um, I left school at sort of 16, going on 17. Um, I think that whole period had I'd been sort of not present, I suspect. Um, and then I hopped on a truck. Uh, hitched a ride on a truck and went to Sydney and kind of learnt how to be a person. Um, That was the project anyway, to try and sort of build an individual out of the bits and pieces that had been left sort of after my mother's death. So when you think about yourself then, Mm -hmm. do you 
do you do you see yourself as, as as brave or reckless or lost or were you unhappy? Look, what teenager isn't unhappy? Um, um, yes, I was unhappy, but not all the time. And and I think what compensated for that unhappiness and lostness was a profound, a gargantuan curiosity and a, um, an innate kind of drive forward into life. Um, so, yes, I was frightened and all of the things that you would imagine a young girl in that situation to be. But at the same time, um, I was open to life and to everything that happened. I was like a sponge, just absorbing everything that I saw, everything that I uh, grappled with. And it was an extraordinary time. Um, I ended up... When I first got to Sydney, I lived on the streets, um, but I didn't think of myself as in any way pitiable or or um, desperate. It was more like being a, an adventurer in a strange land. Tell me a bit about uh, your father. I mean, did he give his blessing to you taking off? Did he? Where was he in your life at that point? We didn't really know each other very well at that point. He'd been a, an older father, very um, sort of traditional Edwardian type, I guess, um, rather um, sort of inadequate. I mean, a darling, loving father, but quite inadequate into, um, in the sense of raising girls. You know, girls belong to women, to mothers, not to fathers. Um, so we didn't really know each other. Um, I think he was terribly worried about me, but I didn't tell him things. You know, I kept my life very much um, from him because uh, I didn't want to worry him. And only in my 20s, really, did he and I get to know each other and, in fact, became very close, very close friends, I would say. I get the impression that he was a rather swashbuckling figure. Yes, he who, was. He was, he was Errol Flynn, really. Right. That's what he was. And he took mm. on, I mean, he wasn't the greatest farmer. <laughs> and so, you know, one farm hit the deck and he moved. Your mother mm. uh, loved the city and she found herself in the country and possibly ignored while your father got on with the business. Did Did you blame him for her death? I didn't blame him in, uh, how would I put it? My father embodied an ideology, mm. um, and it was an ideology that was Darwinian. Um, there was a natural order of things. Some cultures were naturally um, more fit than other cultures. Some people were more fit than other people, and men occupied a certain realm and women occupied a different realm and that was the way of nature. So it was a very inherently cruel ideology, although he was by no means a cruel man. He was a sweet man. Um, but that ideology limited him and crushed people like my mother.
So I don't blame him, but I I think, you know, these forces play out through individuals. Do you think that in your life you were similarly crushed by a similar ideology? I mean, when, when you were in Sydney, mm. you became the mistress, and you describe this in, in the book, you became the mistress of the manager of an illegal casino. Who sounds like one of those, you know, we used to, in Australia, we used to call them racing identities. <laughs> and um, and that ended terribly badly. I mean, you were assaulted at knife point. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I you know, I don't want to... You can't live a free life without risk. Um, I joined, I, I got a job at that casino as a dealer initially and then got quite addicted to A, the game of poker, five-card stud poker, which I loved, and B, the, the how would I put it, the, not the excitement exactly, but the fascination with the underworld, with the people who inhabited that world. It was like being in The Sopranos. And all of them were charming. All of them had families. All of them were funny. There was this wonderful kind of um, patois that they all used. And I was absolutely captivated by that. And, yes, I had an affair with the boss, um, fairly predictably. Um, But if you inhabit that world, you have to live by its rules. And without realising I was doing so, I broke one of those rules and I was punished. But and the rule, case, the rule that you broke was you wanted to get out of it. No, not really. I wanted to get out of a particular situation, um, and I did. And I did that very clumsily, which might have led to um, to trouble, and therefore I had to be taught a lesson. But in any case, by then I felt that I had come to the end of what I could absorb from that part of life in Sydney, and I was kind of ready to leave anyway. Um, But that precipitated the end of that era for me. And I then rang my dad, which was very um, uncharacteristic. It's something I'd never done before. And I said, please come and get me. He was living in Brisbane. I was in Sydney. So he drove down and picked me up, and that began the era of getting to know my dear dad. So, oh, well, in other words, not everything is, uh, you know, it, it's an ill will, that, that it's an ill wind that blows no good. Yep, of course. The older one gets, the more one realises that, of course. Yes, yes huh. indeed. Um, the, when did the idea of walking through the desert for, you know, over 2,000 kilometres take you? Uh, I think it was cumulative. You know, these decisions, they kind of come bit by bit. Uh, I, it was sort of early 70s and my sense was that the, the real thrust of the 60s, that hopefulness, that extraordinary hopefulness of the 60s, of the late 60s, you know, one really could change the world, that it was going to fundamentally change and become better. 
that was petering out, at least in Australia, I felt. So a lot of us, I think at that time, were at a loose end. Um, feminism was very important, of course. Um, but I, I knew that I had to do something big and challenging with my life in order to sort of pull myself together as a person, to prove to myself that I wasn't incompetent, um, that I could take on something that was large and difficult. I knew I wanted to be in the desert. I had no money whatsoever. I remember I arrived in Alice Springs with $6. All I knew was that there were wild camels out there and they were free. So, <laughs> free camels. They were free camels. So I thought, well, I'll just somehow get myself some and and I'll use them to go into the desert. And indeed, that's what sort of happened. You never intended to write about it. No, this was an entirely private enterprise, yes. which is even stranger now than it was then because nothing's private now. Well, absolutely. I mean, now, in fact, I met a gorgeous young woman who'd done something similar fairly recently, really lovely, lovely young person. And she said that she felt beholden to put it on social media, that she felt she would have felt guilty if she hadn't. And I thought how bizarre that was to go into a, you know, into a metaphorically um, um, isolated situation and feel that you had to uh, be a public event. So for me, it was quite the opposite. It was wanting to disappear under the radar. Um, I had no intention of writing about it. And honestly, I didn't think anyone would be interested. It was such a personal, private gesture. So that when it did become uh, very public, and suddenly I was on the front page of newspapers all around the world, it was deeply shocking to me. And and I knew instinctively that I would have to be very careful with how I managed that. It was the National Geographic um, coverage of it that you, yes. that you needed for finance, did you not? Yes. So that was and what blew your cover, as it were. Exactly. And I knew even at the time, you know, even as I was... Um, engaging National Geographic. And at that time, you know, I was very much a sort of 60s lefty. So National Geographic was just the last word in conservative conservative sort of thought. So I, I did it because I simply couldn't think of another way of getting the money to buy the equipment that I would need. Um, but even at the time, I felt it was a sellout. And I told myself this story that, well, you know, the photographer would be there at the beginning and the end and maybe once in the middle, but it wouldn't change anything. But, of course, it radically changed the whole tone of the thing because from the threat, the, the meaning of doing it for me was to be the subject of my own life. And inevitably, when you are photographed and turned into a story, you are the object you become the object. So it transformed the thing um, for good or ill. Um, of course, there were many, many assets that flowed from that. Um, but it was 
you know, it became everyone's journey rather than my own. The movie depicts you as quite troubled. I know. I'm very much against that. <laughs> <laughs> I think, look, movies have to solve different problems. No, I completely understand it. And I mean, you had to be... You had to be portrayed as troubled, both to give you a sort of depth backstory and also to underline how difficult it was. But yes. nevertheless, I know you, you say that there were far more moments of joy than were allowed to be depicted on the screen. Well, it was, for me, it was a joyous, positive, marvellous thing to do with my life. It worked. It worked in the sense that it pulled me together as an individual. It gave me extraordinary confidence in my capabilities and strengths. It showed me that I had all these capabilities and strengths that I didn't know were there. And what I'd wanted to share with people in the book was that you too must have these buried abilities. You don't have to, you know, find your own desert, in other words. Um, and I think what the film the way the film decided to go, and this is no one's fault, really, mm -hmm. and Mia's still a very dear friend, the young actress who played me. She's wonderful. But I think the she was made much too troubled, and, you know, it was as if the, the idea was that there's this deterministic link between having a mother who kills herself and you know, punishing yourself by crossing a desert. But it wasn't a punishment, it was a joy. However, what was it, or who was it, mm. who had convinced you that you were, quote, useless, ugly and stupid? Look, all families have their, um, their troubled undertoes. Um, so I'd had a... An older sister, I had an older sister who was very much displaced by my birth. And um, so that was a sort of fairly constant refrain from her when I was a kid. Um, and because that sibling rivalry or sibling trouble wasn't dealt with properly, I think it's kind of became something that I absorbed deeply into my bones, um, particularly, of course, after my mother's death because there was no one to give me a, a count of you. You've said that your sister's take on your mother's death and life presumably is completely different from yours. This is not uncommon in families for siblings oh, to have completely different childhoods, but... Unavoidable. Have you made your peace with her at all? Um, it's not something I really am comfortable talking about because it isn't fair to her. Um, I've said what I want to say about all that in the book and I don't really feel that it's right to keep talking about it publicly. Fair enough. Mm. But suffice it to say that it remains an unsolved wound, but... It's not something that has derailed your life. Your mother has writing this book mm. made you come to 
terms with, I don't know whether anybody ever comes to terms or something like that. Were you ever angry with her? Do you know, I never have been angry with her. It's such a strange thing. Everyone says it's a sort of truism that it's, yeah. you know, the suicides are angry with the suicide. But I really cannot find that within me. I, I find great sorrow. Um, I, you know, a hundred emotions, but anger isn't one of them. I think that would add insult to injury <laughs> for her. I, what I have discovered is not my mother. She's gone forever. I will never have my mother. There's too little left to reconstruct her. But I think in, in, in doing the work of memory and subsequently of writing the book, I think what I have discovered is that we loved each other and we liked each other. Um, and that's enough for me. That's, and we all live with scars and wounds and, you know, it's not like... Um, it's life. not like any of us are finished, quite right. Anybody, exactly. Uh. So um, really, even though this dreadful thing happened, I consider myself very fortunate. So there you are in London at the age of 28. You describe yourself as unusually unsophisticated. It's but... You ended up living with Doris Lessing. You were one of Doris Lessing's protégés, one could say. How did that come about? You know, I, I've been incredibly lucky in my life with, um, with mentors or pe older people who've seen something in me, God knows how, and encouraged me or taken me in or um, seen something there that I couldn't see myself. I'd written a fan letter to Doris. I'd just read The Golden Notebook, and I was so bowled over by what she had attempted to do in that book and the courage that it took. So I wrote her a fan letter. I mean, I've never written a fan letter before or since. Anyway, I did. And it's a tribute to her that she saw something in that letter. She responded. We set up a correspondence. Um, so when a publisher in England asked me to write a book, I wrote to Doris and I said, what do you think I should do? I don't know if I can write. I don't know if I want to write. And she said, well, Robbie, if you can write a good letter, you can write a good book. So, yes, I think you should. And why don't you come to England to write it? So I did. And um, I ended up living in her house for two or three years. Um, and she was a dear and wonderful literary mother, really. Um, just a very fine, complicated, you know, not easy, but a very um, great individual, I think, Doris. I think, um, I think Jenny Diskey lived with her for a while as well. Would that oh, have been... Yes, Jenny, oh, yes, yes. Well, I knew Jenny fairly well at that time. Um, Jenny had had longer with Doris. Uh, she came under Doris's wing when she was younger. Um, I can't remember how old she was, a sort of 16-year-old, I think, or eight, you know, a sort of troubled teenager. So she'd had longer uh, with Doris than I did. And Peter, her son would have been there when you were there. Yes, he was. He was constantly there. 
um, a, a troubled person as well. Yeah, Not... he he and she died very close together, I think, in 2013. They did, yes, almost. Um, well, well it, yes, which is not surprising to me somehow. It, it was a, um, a deep bond between those two, um, troubled but very deep. You describe a couple of breakdowns you've had, depressive incidents, I don't know what you would prefer to call them. Um, in your book, one of them triggered, I think, by a long and anguished affair with Salman Rushdie, who left his wife and then didn't leave his wife, and this went on for about three years. When you went down into the Depression... Did you know you would come out of it? Uh, yes, I think so. I had always thought, even at the worst of the of those states, that in a sense they didn't quite belong to me, that I was somehow experiencing what my mother experienced, um... And there was always a part of me observing from the sidelines. Uh, so, no, I never thought of myself as a candidate for suicide. Also, the affair with Salman, um, it wasn't, as you describe it, um, we, we lived together in London. I'd left Australia to be with him. Um, but I think what happened was it was a very tumultuous volcanic kind of affair, one of those sorts of affairs. I eventually left, but the damage that, well not damage, but the I think what happened was that it opened up the defences I had against my mother's death so that through that affair I had access to a grief that I had not been a I had not allowed myself to feel for my mother, and that's what precipitated the, uh, the really the return of the past. I would say that's a really interesting way of putting it. You've described it as like being crushed in a cement mixer. Yeah, it was a bit. <laughs> I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but you know these things are. They can also be very. Fruitful. I mean, it sounds slightly masochistic to say that, and I truly would never want anyone to go through that kind of suffering because it is a, an appalling suffering. But there, but it did bring my mother back to me. Um, it brought the past back to me. Um, it was not without, um, let's say, a kind of richness, I suppose. I remember there was a someone else I knew at that time who'd, who'd just lost his partner, and um, he got—he was a medical man. And he said, "Well, I got depressed, so I took pills, and I was over it in a couple of months." And I thought, "Wow, that's—that is one way to live, but I'm not sure that that's the best way to live." Mm. And you know, it raises the question of of whether, when you were younger, if your mother's death had been 
you know, dealt with as it might have been dealt with now, you know, with talking therapy and sunshine shining on it, whether Mm. you would have experienced that kind of devastation in the wake Mm. of the affair with Salman. Who knows? I mean, we can't know these things. Um, I assume that, you know, that that early chapter of my life made me uh, fragile in certain areas. But, you know, if I hadn't met Salman, perhaps that wouldn't have happened. Perhaps it would. Perhaps it would have been worse. Who knows? We can't possibly know. It is what it is. Um, It is just my life. And as I say, you know, we tend to sort of concentrate on the negatives around these things, but it's, you know, it's part of life's... Rich tapestry. Richness, really. Yep. The awfulness and the, and the wonderfulness. Of course. How did you come to know the Indian politician Narendra Bharti, who was very important to you? Bharti, yes, who was a, a very important presence in your life for years. He was. He was my companion of first resort, is how I referred to him. Uh, absolutely wonderful person. Uh, he was, I met him <clears throat> back in, golly, when was that? Must have been 79. Um, I think the National Ge- Geographic had come out. Um, I was by chance in India on my way to England I had no interest in India, but I just sort of fetched up there. Um, And I met him and his family. They were of the old feudal aristocracy in Rajasthan. He'd been raised in that um, funny-looking castle. It looks like a wedding cake. Um, And got to know the family quite well while I was there. But then I went on to London and forgot all about India for a decade. Then, you know, I wrote tracks, blah, blah, time passed. Uh, I was at a bit of a loose end, not quite knowing what I wanted to do next, and went to a dinner party in London, and there was Narendra. And the chances of that happening were so astronomically slim that I saw it as a kind of hand of fate. (laughs) Um, and he said, you know, why don't you come back to India and do that project you wanted to do on nomads and you can stay with us and blah, blah. So I did, uh, and I set up a project in India of traveling on migration with nomads and subsequently wrote a book about that, and Narendra was very helpful to me in in that project. That was a hard project, wasn't it? Oh, it was so hard. It was the hardest thing I've ever done, without question. Because? Really, really hard. Um, well, hard for them, for the people I was with. Their lives are just hard, and I was living their life. Perhaps harder for me because I didn't speak the language properly, so it was very isolating and difficult Um and just physically incredibly demanding, you know, two hours sleep a night and everyone ill and uh, under pressure, uh, dangerous. Uh, yeah, very difficult. Do you think you were idealistic going into that? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean, the thing about India is it's so seductive that 
the people look so beautiful. I mean, the ones I ended up with wore this beautiful black embroidered wool and they were covered in jewellery and silver and just utterly gorgeous looking people. Very proud, very proud of what they did. But, you know, migration these days is no joke. It's um, and, and indeed, no one of, of those people who I knew in Kutch back then, not one single family is still migrating because it's just too hard, too hard for them. Yeah. Was that when you went anyway, to... Miranda and I became partners. That's the end of that story. Yeah. We eventually became partners and he was in my life as my partner for 20 years, really. You ended up, you went to Pushkar, the Camel and Horse Festival and Sale, didn't you? Yes, I did. Early, That's an extraordinary on. thing. I found myself being put on a horse there and, be, and being told, now this yes. horse does not like camels, so be careful. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Terrifying experience. So there I you are. Be. You're in Melbourne now. Have you settled yes. down, Robin? Um, I have settled down in the sense that I knew this book would require some stability. Uh, I'd been very restless. Narendra had died. Um, I didn't know quite which country I should live in, so I chose Australia and bought this old pile of rocks, lovely old house. So that's really where the final push for the book has happened. It's been a sanctuary for me to be able to pull all those bits and pieces together and produce the book. Um, and I do love the house. I love the garden. But if I had to leave it tomorrow, I could do that fairly easily. Ah, so you're still a nomad at heart. So I think so. Not sure. I think so. Yes, I think so. So you can imagine yourself moving on quite easily. Well, I think that's how life it is, really. It's um, For you, not for most people, I think. No, and yet, and we were also subject to change in everything. I suppose maybe I've just had a clearer view that that is how life actually is. So you may as well just go with it. <laughs> something like that. I don't know. Something like that. Um, you are spending your days doing what? Now you finished the book, talking about the book, yes. but Well, exactly, talking about the book. Um, look, I, I will be very glad when I don't have to speak about it anymore. <laughs> the writing of the book hasn't been easy um, for all sorts of reasons. Um, so I'd, sort of, I'd simply like it to come to a conclusion now so that I can think about what the next bit is. Do I want to keep moving? Do I want to stay? You know, what is it I'd really like to achieve with the rest of my life? Maybe nothing, maybe just staring at the clouds. Um, so I'm not sure, and I can't really focus on that until until this phase of the book is over. So in a way, you wrote the book as a private project. Yeah, actually, yes. Yes. It, yes, indeed, at least initially. And then, of course, you know, as as you write on, 
people become interested in it, agents want to know about it, and so on. So it sort of becomes, if you're a writer, it becomes a book, and that becomes a public, um, a public artifact. Mm. There it is out in the world. It it's going to be interesting. I mean, in the book tracks, you you say you wrote nothing inaccurate about that journey, and yet the fictional you did not did not capture the reality. Do you feel that this book has captured your reality? I hope that it captures a deep, a deeper truth than mere fact. Mm. What I mean by that is, there are no lies. There are no lies in tracks. There's not a single misrepresentation or lie. There is not a single lie in this book. However, it is a book, and a book is not is not the reality. They're different things. I think of the book, this book in particular as like a glimmer of light on top of a an infinite ocean. The infinite ocean is the life, and you could write that life in a billion different ways. Um, but this particular book is this particular glimmer of light on the deeper, darker ocean. It, so it indicates the ocean, but it is not the ocean, if that makes sense. It does. Very nice to talk to you. Thank you. And you, Kim. Robin Davidson, whose book is called Unfinished Woman.